Welcome back to another episode of Agile Way podcast, where we explore challenges organizations face on their Agile journey. How to become great Scrum Master, how to change your leadership style, or how to embrace agility at the organization level. I'm Suzy Shokova, Agile coach, certified Scrum trainer, and author of the great Scrum Master book and Agile Leader book, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm passionate about business agility, organizational culture, and Agile leadership, and that was the reason why I decided to start this podcast, to share with you my experiences and stories from my Agile journey. So hello everyone, uh, let me welcome here Trisha Broderick, she's uh, in Agile space forever as most of my Agile friends and I had the first question for you today, what are you currently passionate Hi. about in Agile space? Ah, what am I currently passionate about? Leadership and I, I don't even know if it's currently, I think this has been my ongoing thing for a really long time but definitely continues to be the area that um, my passion just continues to grow is like, I always joke, like the principle number five is all centered around in the agile manifesto is all centered around like motivated teams to trust them to get a job. But I don't think we ever really did a great job at teaching leaders what that meant. We almost did it as this like pat, like not passive aggressive, but honestly, I'm not so sure it was passive, like get out of the way, just get out of the way. And, and the reality is, is, no, <laughs> but let's also help leaders understand what that really means. Like, I definitely didn't understand it and I'm still learning it today, but like, what does it really mean to create an environment where motivation is there? What does it really mean to create an environment where two-way trust is really there? And, and what skills do I need as a leader? And so that's, that has been my passion that continues to be my passion. And, and every time I think, okay, I learned something new. <laughs> so tell us something about your experience. You said you're still learning that. So what was the most difficult for you? Oh, early on, not getting my check marks and my need for control. <laughs> early, I remember sitting in a session and this probably was like in 2007 timeframe. And I sat in a session by Lisa Adkins and she said, she held up this like blank piece of paper. She's like, if you're doing a good job as a, an agile leader, this is what your resume will look like. And I think I literally had a panic attack in the back of that room. Like I was just, I, I was like, I can't not have, you know, accomplishments and job. Like I, I have no basement to go back and live in. Like, and, and my need for, like, I had prided myself on being reliable and dependable and getting things done. And my, loss of being the individual contributor and becoming the leader, man, it was hard for me to give up control. And I would have never called myself a micromanager. And there were a lot of people I probably owe an apology to early on. <laughs> I was probably very much a micromanager and and in a good, meaningful way, like just wanting to get things done, but I would have never identified as that. And yet I very much had a hard time letting go and and learning how to not do it like i once stole a keyboard from somebody to build a database schema because 
it was just faster. Like, it's not proud. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. Right. And, and I think that was early on the hardest part for me, um, lately. And, and as you're pointing out, like still learning, I think the hardest part for me now is, and, and, and even me saying this out loud, I'm struggling to say it. So, so bear with me for a second with this is I have held on to my imposter syndrome as a way to drive me. And in a lot of ways, it caused me a lot of problems and, and my fear of belonging and my fear of, of doing well and, and being successful and everything. But it always, you know, when you're one of few females that graduate in computer science, when you have your own bathroom at multiple companies, when you're right, like, and, and you just like push, right? And so I created this narrative about imposter syndrome that really that's part of what made me successful. But I think in a lot of ways, I do damage now in my current experience and role and as a mentor that I had to find a new way to honor the humility because I never wanted to be arrogant. I'm like, don't you know who I am? <laughs> or like, I already have it all figured out or any of that ridiculousness that unfortunately we have heard some of our colleagues say, right? And um and finding a way to still remain humble, but still honor the constant learning, but also to go, no, I, I do know my stuff and, and I do know what I'm doing. And I read a book by Adam Grant uh, called Think Again, and he refers to this term called confident humility. And I, I've been really trying to embrace that where I, I don't know everything, but I'm confident that I'll figure it out. I'm confident that I'll keep going until I figure it out. And I won't likely be doing it alone. I'll likely be doing it with other people. And so it just, that allowed me to hold on to the humility, hold on to the the reality of, I don't know everything and yet still not shame myself or, or promote to other people that they should be too critical on themselves. Like, um, and, and that's been a much harder journey for me in a lot of ways, uh, finding that balance. If we go back to that micromanaging style of uh, many people, what would you recommend people who recognize, okay, I'm having a difficulty to let things go. I need to control. And how do you help those type of folks, like how to get out of that space? So one, I mean, I did many things. Not one thing worked as and, and like cured me completely. Okay. But one of the things I, I'm an extreme extrovert, I know shocked. I'm sh just shocked you. I know, I know, but like, I thought, and it would immediately fly out of my mouth. So I took true to agilist, right? I had my little trusty post-it notes and I would write down what I was going to say. And sure enough, like I would have, like, I'd be writing down like four different points that I wanted to make, but I'm not saying them. I'm writing them down instead. And then this is so corny, but it's true. Somebody would say one of them and I would get the high from the check mark that I was like, oh, that one's taken care of. And, and slowly over time, as I was doing, I was doing it initially as a technique to basically give more space in the room, right? To shut myself up. But over time, what it ended up becoming was it's this technique for me of realizing not only giving space, which you should do, but two was 
hey, if I'm trying to help other people grow, who is saying this? Who's not saying this? And what are they thinking? What are they seeing? Why how are they seeing it? And it started me actually thinking more about like the environment as a whole instead of just the problem at hand and and what needed to do. And because I started looking at the environment as a whole, it got a little bit easier to not want to control every little tiny thing because I had a much bigger problem by looking at the environment. Like, why isn't this person ever speaking up? Why isn't this happening? Um, and I still got my check marks that way. So that made my heart happy. <laughs> but I started looking at that bigger picture of a problem instead of the specific problem we were trying to solve. And that made it um, partially for my curiosity and problem solving brain, something to focus on. But it also made me start looking at the long game instead of the short game, which I could give up control on the short game much easier than I could for the long game. Just yeah. write it down and you get your check mark when somebody says something. Um, and then if nobody says one of them, you can pop your comment in. And yeah, so that's that was one of the techniques I used that evolved actually as I was using it. Mm, that's a good one. I usually try to think, say it in my head and then uh, wait and see, do I really have to say that? Or is it similar to somebody else? And then I say, oh, I don't have to. And then I feel like, can I Yeah, my problem is, is that the minute the I thought it, it would come out here if I didn't do something with it. <laughs> so I yeah. had to physically write. Um, yeah, it's, and I still do that today. Like even in my coaching sessions or different mm -hmm. things that I'm doing, I'm like, if I'm doing this, it's just so that it stops me from being um, an interrupter or, or, or just taking control of the room, which I mean, I don't do it for malicious. It's just the way my brain and mouth work. Now, I would like to return to a topic of the managers at the beginning of this whole journey. They're often frightened. They don't know where their role is. So what would you recommend to organizations sort of avoid this frustration and to help managers to see that there is still a space for them, that the organization still need them just in a different place? I started in the agile community, not as an independent, not as a consultant. I started as a practitioner and I was an executive. And well, actually at the very start, I was, I was a scrum master things, but I mean, I've done lots of different roles as a practitioner. And I remember sitting in, there in, in a managerial role going, I don't think this community likes me very much. I'm here. I'm trying to learn like what is happening. Right. And, and then I would always get this, like, but you're different. And it's like, no. <laughs> Like there's, there is more of this. I think there's good intent from a lot of people when they're making that kind of flippant statements, like we'll just get out of the way. But the problem is, is you're not meeting somebody where they're at. So you're impacting their psychological safety. And it might be because of status. It could be because of fairness. It could be a trust issue, right? But when you're not meeting somebody where they're at, when you're not saying to a project manager, like it, it cracks me up when people are like, oh, project management should not be part of Agile. Project management's about risk and issues. That's what Agile's trying to deal with is risk in it. Now, how they may have been trained or what they, you know, consider themselves and but the skill, I, if I have one more scrum team that does not know the difference between a risk and an issue, I might lose my mind, right? Like, so here's all this value that an entire discipline is bringing to the table that we kind of just pushed away. And so I approach it a little bit more of like, why are, why do you find your risk register so important? 
Well, because it helps me to plan. It helps me to understand. It helps us to look for opportunities and things. I'm like, great. Now, have, when was the last time you took a vacation? Well, I have it because I have to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm doing, okay, great. Now, do you think you catch everything because you're a single person? Not a chance. And these are always almost the answers that I'll get from a project manager, right? I'm like, great. So let's teach the team these skills. Let's teach the team because now we'll get scalability. We'll get it closer to the problem. And then, and then you're working with that person after that and going, okay, you're teaching them valuable skills, but then what's my job? What's my, what's my, oh, cause they're going to have conflict. Like there's nobody's business. You got to help them work through that. They're going to have power dynamics. Like there's nobody's business. You got to help them work through that. And so you're not only like you're recognizing the current skills they're bringing to the table today, but the current, but the next level skills, they don't even know that they could be doing, that they could be adding to the value that the teams need. And so I try to meet people where they're at today and highlight the value that they bring today and then start to expose them to what else is possible. Because I remember I was, I used to be like, oh, our team is amazing. I had no idea there was something more. I had no idea that there was other potential that I was holding back the team that I, right? Like you don't know what you don't know. And so that's usually the approach I take with a lot of leaders instead of just going, well, you suck and get out of the way. Like, because people will double down. So how do you stuff. help uh, leaders to be the real leader and help people to see those unknowns and open their eyes and take that step and change? Yeah. If I could have had a perfect list of exactly this checklist to follow, I would have created it because I do like me, my checklist, but it is different for each person. So one of the common things that I have to do with a lot of leaders is, and, and I say this with love is, is kind of do that checking moment. And, and, and what I call the checking moment, I needed the checking moment, at, you know, like lots of leaders do. I was working with this C, uh, CFO once and they're like, well, I have to be tough on them. I got to get in. I got to hold them accountable. Right. And I said, okay. And I said, well, who does that for you? Well, I don't need it. Well, why don't you need it? Well, because I don't, I don't, you know, I was like, I, 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 like, like, I, you know, are you stumbling here? Right. Like, why don't you need it? But you think they do well, because this one thing. And, and so usually I try and highlight a little bit of some of the ir irony that is happening or the hypocrisy that is happening. Sometimes I highlight like, well, how do you, how, who's the person, who's your go-to, who's your partner, who's the one that you want to clone on your team. And then they'll ultimately give me a name. I'm like, so why? And then we talk, well, they have the competence and they talk basically a lot about like speed of trust. You know, they have character and competence. And, and I said, okay, now why don't you feel the same way about this person? They're like, well, they're not competent. I'm like, whose issue is that? Theirs or yours, right? And, and are you really helping them build their competence by handholding the way that you are, or are you addressing it in a different way? And um, and and trying to get them to a place where if one of their team members fails, the question isn't you failed, let's figure out what you did wrong is what did I not provide? What did I not give? What did I as the leader not create in the space? And there may not be uh, an answer to that every single time, but it is helping the leader see their job isn't the outcome a lot of times. It's creating the environment so that the outcomes can happen. But a lot of times, you're rewarded, not on that. You're rewarded as a senior leader on the outcome. You're rewarded on 
that single throat to choke. You're rewarded on the wrong things that I have to tap in a lot of times to what is your real motivation? What do you want to be known for? What do you want to do in terms of making a difference? Um, you keep having a problem where people don't respect you. When are you going to, at what point do you want to start changing something, right? There's, if one person doesn't like you, okay. I have a saying that I kind of have that's like, one person will tell you I'm amazing. Another will tell you I'm horrible. You should believe them both because I probably act accordingly, right? And not everybody's going to like you. But when there's a big enough pattern over and over and consistency, then you got to really start looking into something. And and a lot of times, um, you got to tap into a deeper motivation of not just getting the job done at any cost, but again, what that long game is, what do you want to be doing? How do you want to be doing it? Who do you want to be known as? Um, and unfortunately, not every leader is ready for that message. Not every leader is wanting to be in that spot. And and so I I work with the ones that do and, and it is a journey and it's hard. So what helps you on that journey? What's the skill Support. you need? Oh, skills. Um, well, and I'm going to still say support to begin with, because again, going back to that confident humility, right? Being able to say, this is hard. I did a session at a scrum gathering once that just said, sometimes being the leader really sucks. <laughs> you just, you get blamed for everything. You get yelled at for everything. Like, it's isolating. You can't complain. You got to just take it on the chin, right? Like sometimes it's just really hard. So uh, not it's not really a skill, but yet I'm going to say it is a skill. Asking for help, right? Being willing to be vulnerable, taking a break, taking care of yourself is really, really important. Um, other skills is like facilitation. I, I say the word facilitation and people are always like, well, I know how to take notes. I'm like, oh, that's so cute. That's not what facilitation is. If you come to me complaining because person X is talking too much in the meeting, you can never get the team to make a decision. Um, So-and-so is not participating. If you ask them a question, nobody says anything. All of those behaviors are because your facilitation is lacking. And, and people kind of like, oh, no, that's because they are horrible. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm a loud person in a meeting, but if I have a good facilitator, oh, I'm like, you can control me and, and not in a manipulative way. It's just the way the activities you are doing, make it so that I better collaborate with people. I better engage with people in, in a healthier way. So I always kind of like look at people and say, you got to build facilitation. In fact, taking notes or having a marker is not facilitation. It's really learning how to bring a team together to make a collaborative decision and what is all involved in that and what needs to be true for that. Um, that's, that's one of the biggest skills that I work with a lot of leaders initially on because it helps them to stop being that hub, that single point of failure, that control dynamic is learning how to facilitate with others. But I've, I've stopped, I think, and I'm working through this myself right now. Like I have an ACSM that is solely focused on facilitation. But I basically say, hey, I have an ACSM focused on facilitation. People are like, I don't know, need that. I know how to schedule meetings. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. So I think I'm getting to a point where struggling with making team decisions, <laughs> like collaborative team decisions, then this is like, for some reason, there's such a bad connection to the word facilitation and what it is or what it isn't 
that so many leaders don't pick up the skills that they need for that, that apply to any environment and honestly apply to your home, <laughs> apply in so many situations that would become beneficial. So that's a big skill that I usually start a lot of leaders off with because it also helps them to realize they don't have to make every decision. It also helps them to realize how much they might be contributing to the environment or to the situation at hand. So uh, you're in Agile for a while, but if you remember your beginning, what brought you into this Agile space? What was the initial calling? So, so it was, I have a weird, well, maybe not weird. I guess a couple, few people have this. So I actually got exposed to extreme programming in 1999. And I was working for a bank called Northern Trust in Chicago. And I was working with a small boutique co a consulting company. And we were we created this program called Bauhaus University. And we were going to teach them how to write J2E web apps. Um, and, uh, and so we used extreme programming to do it because, but in my mind, I linked it to teaching, right? Like I linked it to let's do short release so I can help you learn how to code, how to do this, what we're going to do with that. And so I did that for a number of years and I loved it, but I went right back to like waterfall right after. Cause I was like, Oh, that was for teaching <laughs> like, and, and went right back to waterfall. And then in 2000 and, um, like four or five time frame, I got exposed to Scrum on a huge government project. We were going to do when we were replacing the state of Michigan's Medicaid project, we were going to use Scrum. I did not bring this in. Somebody else brought this in and I fought it like there was nobody's business. In fact, I kind of wish I knew who the agile coach was because I think I made that person cry. Like I, I was evil <laughs> and, and just frustrated, but yet something was, I, I would say we did. I learned how to not do scrum in 2005. Like, I mean, if you could fake it any more than we were, I mean, we were like, top of the level. I mean, we were experts at faking it. Perfect burn down charts. Like it was incredible. And, um, but yet that project was successful in many, many, many ways. And it actually, what was the success part wasn't necessarily the scrum part of it as much as the agile manifesto part in terms of we really were prioritizing customer collaboration. We really were responding to change. We really were putting individuals in interactions first and, and, and working software so that we could figure things out. And so I was like, there's something here. I'm clearly not doing it well. <laughs> I'm clearly something's off. I need to learn more about this. And so I went to my first Agile Alliance conference in 2007. And um, I had kind of a panic attack, uh, one from Lisa's section, uh, session, but just in general, because uh, I was like, no, my brain can't handle this. But but after that, I just dug in even more from the experiences that we had and we continue to have from that. So I it's weird because I, I, I voluntarily got involved with XP very early, fought Scrum, and then still panicked as I was getting into the Agile community. But um, I've been part of it ever since. I've gone to every one of the big Agile Alliance conferences except for 2020s um, for every year since then and, and have stayed engaged. That's a nice journey from faking it, which I started as well, 
to the real enthusiast. <laughs> so we have something in common, really fun. So I have my last I I question mean, for I'm today. I'm not sure that you can say that you got into agile without the faking at first. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'll believe anybody that doesn't say that. <laughs> yeah, maybe yes. Who knows? So my last question. How do you see the future of Agile in like 20 years from now? Where it all goes? What do you think? It's interesting in that, like I said, I've, I've been around for quite some time. I remember um, asking the VP of sales to join me at the Agile 2012 conference. Uh, the VP of sales came to the Agile 2012 conference. And there wasn't a session for him there. <laughs> There was no sessions in sales specific, no sessions outside of software, right? But all I kept thinking at the time was, I can't be successful as the director of development if you're not on board with this. Like, like, and and so for me, I'm kind of like kid in a candy store right now with the business agility and really like, I get super excited every time there's somebody in finance or marketing discipline that's coming to a class in agile and understanding because I think the innovation as a whole is is right there and and potential to really start embracing knowledge work and complexity and really making some things that are called best practices beautiful at one time that need to let go of right and so it's funny that you asked me this question because right now I kind of feel like I am living my final like my dream that I've had for so long with the business agility thing where do I think it goes after this period I think, and maybe maybe this is selfishly tying it to the book that Diana Larson and I just wrote, and I I didn't even think about this until you asked me this question, but it's it's that next level is if we can get to a place where we can really have some business agility, how do we start building some resiliency in that learning? How do we create a, a safe environment for the realities of that? that we have to be able to experiment, that we have to be able to learn, that it isn't about getting it right perfect the first time to really be a disruptor, to really innovate and to engage. And so I hope that the world and then specifically the agile space world really takes hold of what we've been talking about this whole time when it comes to the growth mindset, but takes it up another level. I don't care what it's called. I don't care what framework or practices there are, but I really hope that the world continues to embrace that growth mindset and that we find a spot where we can embrace learning and resiliency much more than perfection and feeling like there's something that we can just blame and move on from. Well, that's very inspiring. Thank you very much for the whole conversation. It's my pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. I was I was always glad to catch up and see you and, and be able to take a few minutes of time with you. It always makes me happy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Agile Way podcast hosted by Zuzi Shekhova, author of the Great Scrum Master book and Agile Leader book. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. If there is any topic you are particularly interested in and would like to hear another episode on it, let me know. For more information about me and my Agile classes, visit our website sochova.com, S-O-C-H-O-V-A.com. Thank you for listening.